We are so glad that you have chosen to stream this audio, and we hope it will encourage you in your faith and your walk towards Christ-likeness. As a side note, we pray that this audio sermon is just supplemental in your relationship with Christ and in no way replaces the church you are plugged into or the pastor that God has put in your life to shepherd and care for your soul. And so with that said, please enjoy this sermon. We have prayed that God would use it in your life. We're going to be in Luke chapter 9, uh, going through verses 28 uh, through 36 this morning. So uh, this morning uh, we are looking at a uh, somewhat famous passage called the Transfiguration. And the Transfiguration is all about glory. Well, glory uh, is an awesome thing. And, and I don't use that word awesome in the sense that we typically use it uh, in everyday language, where awesome just means something that's kind of cool, you know? We might say, oh, that game was awesome. Maybe not this year, you know, because there haven't been as many games. Uh, maybe some of you are still bitter about March Madness like I was. Still trying to work through that, um, but optimistic for this year. You know, so, but we say awesome about things that we think are, are kind of cool. Uh, you know, maybe we're talking about someone that we, we like. They're a really awesome person. And we say that was an awesome game. I had, a, I had an awesome day yesterday, you know, talking about a good day. And the way we use the word awesome uh, actually doesn't get at the heart of what the word actually means. The word awesome is meant to refer to something that brings us to a place of utter awe. It amazes us, maybe even drives us to our knees because of how amazed we are. When you talk about something like, uh, and you use the word awesome, it's meant to convey glory. When we think about glory, there's not a whole lot that we can we can really think about to visualize this concept, but maybe, maybe you've thought about a time where you have seen something in the world that was truly amazing. Maybe you've been to the Grand Canyon. Maybe you have seen beautiful mountain ranges in different areas of the world. Maybe you've seen a volcano. Maybe you've seen something truly spectacular when you were traveling. Uh, may, I mean, maybe you have seen something in your life that you think, yeah, that was awesome. It filled me with wonder and awe. But even, even the things in this life that are that beautiful, that amazing, even the things of this life that we treasure most, Everything from an experience of seeing something beautiful in creation like the Grand Canyon to seeing the birth of a child or, or seeing uh, even, even someone uh, walking with Christ all their days. All the, all the beautiful things in this life that we see and that we witness that are meant to bring about awe in us, they're just previews. They're previews of a greater glory that we have yet to see. 
Maybe we've gotten glimpses of it. If we're in Christ, if we trust in him, if we follow Jesus, then surely we have seen glimpses of his glory as he's shown himself to us. But all we've seen yet are previews. And this morning we're going to see one of the most spectacular previews in all of redemptive history in the transfiguration of Christ before just the closest of his disciples. And so look with me this morning at Luke chapter 9 as we see Jesus in his glory, just a preview, just a glimpse of how he actually is. Starting in verse 28, and we're going to see three things this morning. So if you're, you're a note taker out there, our three things are we're going to see in Jesus and his work a new deliverance, a new presence, and a new son. So let's look at it starting in verse 28, and we'll see these three things this morning as we behold and encounter the glory of our God. Here's what Luke writes for us. He says, Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Would you pray with me one more time? God, there is such glory to be seen here, even in this passage, as you give us a glimpse of your glory. So God, I pray this morning, would you help us to see you in your awesome wonder? Would you help us to see you for who you are in the person and work of Jesus Christ? Would you help us to understand how in him we have deliverance, in him we have your very presence, and in him we have your son, the one that we must listen to. So God, help us by your spirit now as we study your word together. Speak to us and show us your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I said, there's three things that I want you to see this morning as we look at this passage. And the first is this idea of a new deliverance. 
So look with me at these first few verses, 28 through 31. We'll look at a couple of things here, and I want you to see this idea as we talk about Jesus' departure. Verse 28, Luke says, Now about eight days after these sayings, so, so he's referring back to something that we've just read about, right? This is a, a transition that Luke is making. He says, now about eight days, and, and whatever you read now about eight days, six days, something along those lines, the author is, is trying to draw your attention to something. He's getting specific as he transitions to a new subject so that you'll make a connection, and the, the primary connection that Luke, I think, is wanting us to make is to something that Jesus just said in our passage last week, where at the end of that passage, if you remember, he said, I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. This is what Jesus said last week in our passage. He was referring to the group in front of him, the disciples and and those there, and, and he said, there's some standing here who won't die until they see the kingdom. You see, and we have to understand that whenever they would have heard these words, it would have drawn up a hope in them like you and I cannot possibly imagine. Because what they had longed for, what they had prayed for, what they had pleaded with God to bring about as they sat under the oppressive rule of the Romans, was for God to once again bring about his kingdom. For God to once again deliver his people from the oppressive rulers that were over them currently. And the reason I say once again is because if you remember in the Old Testament, the major event of the Old Testament in which God delivered his people was the Exodus, right? Where, where he delivered them out of slavery, out of the, the oppressive rule of Pharaoh and the Egyptians, and he delivered and saved his people. And he established a kingdom. And now, fast forward into the times of the New Testament, his people are in a way, living in exile again. They're longing for God to bring about his kingdom once again, to save them, to deliver them. They need the deliverance that only God can provide. And Jesus says these words. He says, some of you standing here, some of you right here in front of me, you're gonna see the kingdom before you die. And this would have been amazing to them. This would, have, this would have given them hope again. And so we have to understand that when Luke says now, about eight days after these sayings, he's referring back to what we've just read that Jesus has said about the kingdom. And if you remember, I said last week that I think that when we see the kingdom of God first and primarily is, is after the resurrection of Jesus. You see, one of the things we'll talk about as we get closer to the end of Luke's gospel is how on the cross, Jesus is lifted up, and it's almost like an enthronement ceremony where there's even a crown placed upon his head. They place it on his head to mock him, and they write, this was the king of the Jews, but what they don't realize 
is that they've actually crowned the rightful king. And, and Jesus, in his death on the cross and then his resurrection from the grave, we see him establishing his kingdom, bringing it about, and we see the, the first fruits of it, the beginning of this kingdom. This kingdom that we still await to see fully brought about on the earth as he promises he will do when he returns. But I think we see the beginnings of it there. But in our passage today, the disciples get a preview of it. They get to see the kingdom before Jesus brings it about in seeing the king in his glory. You see, that's the thing about kings is kings have glory, right? We, you know, we don't understand this idea as much because we live in a a democratic context. Uh, We're under a democracy. We don't live underneath a king. But in countries where where there are kings, I heard David Platt tell a story about uh, how he was speaking with someone in in a country overseas where where they had a king. And whenever the king would show up, the people would weep with tears of joy because they believed their king was good. They believed their king was glorious. And to see him was a beautiful sight. They knew that there was someone ruling who was out for their good, who cared for them, and who was willing to lay things down for them, to sacrifice for them. They knew their king was good, and so to see him was a glorious thing. It was to see his glory. So kings, they, they have glory. To see a king is to bring one to a place of awe. It's an awesome thing. Again, not in the sense that we typically use the word, but much grander and greater. And so when they heard Jesus say, you're going to see the kingdom, they would have been amazed. And then now, eight days later, after these sayings, he takes with him Peter and John and James as he goes up to the mountain to pray. And throughout the scriptures, you see that oftentimes God's people encounter God and his glory on mountains. You think back to the Exodus that I mentioned earlier. And where does Moses encounter God? But on the mountain. He encounters the glory of God as a cloud overshadows the mountain. And God speaks to him and gives him his words and says, listen to me. Tell my people to listen to me. And then now we're going to see in this passage today that he looks, he, he, the cloud once again overshadows the mountain. And he says, this is my son, listen to him. You see, this, the point of this passage this morning, apart from even the three points that we're walking through together, just the main point, if you don't see anything else, I want you to see the glory of who Jesus is. I want you to see that he's God. I want you to see that he's the king. I want you to see that he's good. I want you to see that in him is hope and life everlasting. I want you to see Jesus this morning. 
in all his glory, even if it's just a glimpse that God would allow us to see. You see, as I think about this idea of seeing Jesus in his glory, I'm reminded of Charles Spurgeon's testimony. He was this great preacher, wrote I don't even know how many books and commentaries on the Bible and pastored a large church for many years and, and we still read his sermons today. He was an incredible man redeemed by God. And his testimony, the way that he came to faith in Christ is on a snowy, blizzardy morning. He he walks to the closest church that he can find and goes in and the pastor couldn't even make it to church that morning because of the blizzard. <laughs> he couldn't even make it. And so a, a church member gets up to preach because there's no one else there. And this church member gets up and he doesn't have a sermon prepared. He doesn't have anything ready to go. He doesn't have anything. He's not prepared for this. And all he keeps saying is look to Jesus. Look to Jesus and be saved. And Charles Spurgeon, this young man, he's sitting there in the pews, and eventually the man even looks at him. Don't worry, I'm not going to look at any one of you individually and zero you out. It's okay. I know the anxiety started to rise, but I would too. <laughs> but here's Charles Spurgeon. He's sitting there in a pew, and, and this old man who just got up to preach because the pastor wasn't there, look, he looks straight at him, and he says, young man, look to Jesus. Look at Jesus and be saved. You see, this morning, I want you to see Jesus. That's what I want you to see as we walk through this gospel of Luke. That's what Luke wants you to see. That's what the Holy Spirit wants you to see, is Jesus. If you were with us on Wednesday night via Facebook, we talked about the Holy Spirit and who he is and his ministry and how what he does is he points us to Jesus. He shows us who Jesus is and he reminds us of what Jesus has said. It's all about Jesus. He is the glory of God. The fullness of God dwells in him. So that's what I want you to see this morning. But as we talk about this idea of a new deliverance that Jesus brings, it's very tied to these ideas of, of him bringing about the kingdom, of even pointing back to the exodus. And I want you to see something here. Verse 29, and as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered or transfigured. So maybe we're not really familiar with this concept of, of transfiguration, but this is what this passage is referred to. So, so maybe, maybe you've either read or seen the Harry Potter series. Uh, you've read the books or you've seen the movies. And so in, in that series, uh, there's this professor, uh, Professor McGonagall, and she teaches a subject called transfiguration. And the idea with transfiguration is that you change the likeness of something. You change its appearance, is a better word. And, and so in this moment, in the transfiguration, in the Gospel of Luke and in the other Gospels, what we see happening 
is the appearance of Jesus is changed in front of these disciples. It's not changed in the sense that he's now different than he was. It's changed in the sense that now they are able to see him as he is. They're able to see him in his glory. His appearance is transfigured before them, and they see that this is not just a man, but this is God come to save. God, very God. The appearance of his face was altered. His clothing became dazzling white. Imagine, as you, as you try to look at the sun, please don't do that and damage your eyes, but as you try, you can't look at it, can you? Because it's so bright. It doesn't even come close to the glory of God. His clothes became a dazzling white, and behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, So this passage is about Jesus, so don't miss the point when we talk about Moses and Elijah, because I think that's actually what Peter does a little bit. (laughs) And that's what we're tempted to do as well. We're tempted to see everything but Jesus, the main point. But these two men appear, and they're talking with Jesus, and Luke is actually the only one who tells us anything about what they're talking about. So if you've ever wondered what... Moses and Elijah were doing there, what they were talking with Jesus about on this mountain, Luke's about to tell us. They're talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. Now, now before we talk about this word departure, that's what they're talking about. I want you to notice something, because I think sometimes when we read this passage, we think that maybe Moses and Elijah are appearing in the same kind of glory that Jesus is. But I want you to notice in Scripture that human beings don't appear with glory of their own. If you think about back to the Old Testament, when Moses would enter into the tent of meeting and meet with God, and then he would come out his face would be shining with, with just a, a, a remainder of the glory that had shone on him in the presence of God. And I think here, too, in this passage, it's not that Moses and Elijah show up with a glory that's of their own. It's that they're in the presence of Jesus, who is appearing in his glory. And so they appear in glory, too. You see, this is the thing that Jesus is able to do, is he's able to take everyday people like you and me, human beings, he's able to take us, and in his presence, make us glorious. And I, I don't hear me saying in that sense that that he somehow, like, that somehow there's anything inherent in us. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that in the presence of Jesus, we are changed by his glory. You see, Moses and Elijah, they appear in glory, but it's in the glory of Jesus. And Peter misunderstands this, but we'll get to that in a moment. Here's, here's what they were talking about, though. They spoke of his departure, 
And, and if you notice, maybe in the ESV, if you're reading the ESV or in your translation that you're reading, there may be a little number one or something right next to that word. And that often points you to that there's a, another way to translate this, this term, this word. And you can look at the footnote, and what you'll see in the ESV is that it says the Greek is Exodus. I want that to just sit with you for a minute. Let's read this as though it didn't say departure, but it said that. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. This is what I mean when I say I want you to see this morning that in Jesus is a new deliverance for God's people. It's a new exodus. The exodus was the paradigm of salvation for God's people in the Old Testament. It is how they understood this idea of God saving his people. And in the New Testament, how we see the gospel writers reveal what Jesus is doing and once again saving and delivering God's people is they frame it in terms and an imagery of the exodus to show us that once again God is bringing about an exodus for his people, a deliverance for his people. But it's a new kind of deliverance. It is a new deliverance that is in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. In Jesus and all his glory and in all his work in the cross and resurrection. Because did you notice that they said they were talking about his exodus that, that he was about to accomplish. This is a work he's about to do. Something he's about to do for his father and for the people he loves. And it's to be accomplished at Jerusalem. You see, so Jesus at this point in the gospel of Luke he is turning his face towards Jerusalem. He is headed towards the cross where he will die for the sins of God's people. He will be the perfect spotless lamb, sinless, glorious, God taken on flesh so that he could head to the cross and die in our place and pay the price for us so that he could accomplish our deliverance, so that he could bring about our salvation, so that he could bring about our new exodus. Jesus came to do this, to accomplish this, and he accomplishes it at Jerusalem, where he's spurned and rejected by men, men that he came to save. And so in this passage, we first see a new deliverance. And, and as we think about the relevance of this for us, we have to think about how we need this new, new deliverance. We need this exodus that Jesus accomplished at Jerusalem. We need his departure. His departure led to his resurrection and ascension led to us being reconciled to God and the reason that we needed this. The Bible has a word for that and that word is sin. 
And sin is simply this idea of rebellion against God, turning away from him, turning away from his good desires for us, and walking our own way to establish our own kingdom instead of living underneath his good reign and rule. And that sin, it separates us from him. Isaiah says that our sin hides God's face from us. That's weighty. That is significant. And those words don't even convey the grief that we should feel at that. But sin is a terrible thing, not just in and of itself, but its results as well, that it separates us from the God who made us and who loves us and who wants a relationship with us. And this is the reason that we need this new exodus. We don't need a new exodus because we're living underneath a Roman rule. They didn't need a new exodus because they were living underneath the Roman rule. That's what they think they need a new exodus for. They think they need a new exodus because the Romans are ruling over them and their rule is oppressive. But there's something that rules over us that is much more oppressive than any governing institution or individual. And it is the sin of our own hearts. It rules us and guides us and directs us. And if it sits on the throne, it will destroy us. And so you and I, just as Peter, James, and John, and and the others, we need an exodus. We need a deliverance. We need saving. But we don't need saving from the oppressive rule of a government. We need saving from the oppressive rule of our own sin that is out to devour us, just as God told Cain that it would him. We need this new exodus, and the good news is that Jesus brings it at Jerusalem through his cross and resurrection. So that's the first thing I want you to see about the glorious Jesus that is presented to us, that he brings about a new deliverance. And here's the second thing I want you to see is that in him is a new presence, the very presence of God. Starting in verse 32, now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. So if you're falling asleep right now, it's okay. Peter, James, and John struggled with this too, okay? If you, if you struggle to, uh, I mean, this is good news for us, right? I mean, this is also how we know that the Bible is not written uh, by men to convince men to follow them, but it's written by human beings inspired by God's own spirit to point us to him because Peter, James, and John were the heads of the early church. They were heading up this thing, and the Bible is way too honest about all their faults and failures for this to not be true. If you're trying to set up a religion, you're trying to set things up for yourself, you don't write this honestly about your faults and failures. 
Peter, James, and John are falling asleep as Jesus has invited them on the mountain with him. You know, maybe you've been to a prayer meeting before, maybe you've been to, to prayer service, and maybe you've thought, this is an important thing for, for me and my family to do, to, to gather with other believers to pray. But Jesus himself invited these guys to a private prayer meeting, and they fell asleep. So that's really good news for you and me when, you know, like sometimes, let's be honest, I'll be, I'll be at home and I'll be trying to, to pray. Sometimes I'm praying for some of you. And I'll start to nod off, you know. And this is just good news. That even Peter, James, and John, even as they're with Jesus on the mountain, <laughs> and Jesus is praying, they're like falling over, half asleep. But something happens, and they become fully awake. Jesus is transfigured. They became fully awake, and they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Did you see that? They saw his glory and the two men who were with him. So once again, I I think that Moses and Elijah appear in glory because they appear in the glory of Jesus, in his presence. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. I don't know about you, but when, when you just wake up from a nap, sometimes, sometimes I don't speak as intelligibly as I do other times. Um, so sometimes I've got I've to wake up for a minute before I can have a, a serious, important conversation. Because once you, when, when you're drowsy, you just, you just say things. And later you're like, why would I say that? Well, Peter has one of those moments. He's just woken up from a nap that he wasn't supposed to be taking, but he took it anyway. And there's this amazing thing happening in front of him that God is doing. And, and he's seeing the glory of Jesus. He's seeing Jesus for who he is as God. Clearly on display and and he says hey let me make some tents and and maybe you think what what is the deal with the tents i mean like why would peter say this well peter has reasons so i don't want you to think he's a complete idiot he's got some reasons okay peter peter wants to set up three tents because peter is realizing part of what's happening Peter is realizing that in front of him, he is seeing the glory of God. He is encountering the God of glory. And he remembers that he's read his Old Testament, and he remembers what Moses did. How Moses made a tent, made the tabernacle. And, And at the tent of meeting is where Moses would continue to meet with God. He would continue to encounter God's glory at the tent of meeting. And so Peter says, hey, I'm encountering the glory of God. I must need to make a tent. And so he says, let me make three tents. And do you see the problem with this that I've already kind of hinted at? Moses and Elijah appear in glory not because of their own glory, but because of the one in whose presence they are. And Peter, he just sees this glorious thing happening, and he says, well, Jesus must need a tent, Moses must need one, and Elijah must need one. Notice he's not, he's not 
making tents for himself. Making tents for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. Because he's, he's got this tent of meeting idea in his head. And God the Father comes in and he, he kind of rebukes Peter. So this is a really intimidating moment. I want you to see it. Can you imagine God the Father just coming to you and rebuking you? Here, here's what happens. Not knowing what he said, then verse 34, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. You ever get afraid as you like drive into a storm? You're, like driving down the highway, and you see it coming, and you're like, oh, no, you know. And if you're stubborn like me, instead of pulling off and kind of waiting it out, you just drive on in. But as you drive on in, you're terrified because you, you get, as you get closer, you see that this cloud is bigger than you, more powerful than you, and it completely overshadows you and covers you. And this is that kind of moment where the cloud, the, which remember, in once again, the book of Exodus, we read about the cloud overshadowing the tent of meeting as God's glory enters into the tent and fills it. So this is, once again, a symbol of God's very presence. This cloud overshadows the mountain where all this is happening, and, and they're afraid, and they probably should be. Cloud came and overshadowed them. They were afraid as they entered the cloud, and a voice came out of the cloud. So not only is there this terrifying cloud that's over you, all of a sudden the cloud speaks. Gosh, that's terrifying. A voice come, comes out of the cloud and says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And so God the Father says, look at Jesus. Stop looking at Moses and Elijah. This is my son. This is the glorious one. You see, Peter, he makes two errors here. One is that he puts Moses and Elijah on the same playing field as Jesus. When Moses and Elijah, who represent the law and the prophets, represent all of God's word up to this point, what they do is they point to him. They point to God's promised one the Messiah, the Christ, who will bring about the new deliverance for God's people. They point to him. And so that's Peter's first mistake. And then his other mistake is, is what he's not realizing yet, even though he sees it in front of him, is that there is no need for a tent of meeting anymore because in the person of Jesus, we have God's very presence with us. John, in the first chapter of his gospel, as he introduces Jesus to us, he says, and the word, talking about Jesus as the revelation of God, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen, listen to this, his glory. The glory is of the only son God the Father just said, this is my son, my chosen one. The only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That word dwelt, when John says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, that word for dwelt, 
could be translated tabernacled. And the word tabernacled among us took on flesh and he tabernacled with us. He tented with us. It means God himself has now come to us and we don't need a tent in which to meet with him because in Jesus we have him himself in Jesus. Jesus is the new tent, the new tabernacle, the new temple. He is the place in which we find God's presence because he is God himself. And so Peter, he even as he begins to see a glimpse of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. See, he sees his preview of the kingdom. You know, previews, previews are meant to show us how amazing something's going to be, right? You know, you, you all know that I, I love Marvel movies, okay? I love superhero movies, especially the Marvel ones, because they're better than all the DC stuff so far. But I love them, and, and, and this year has really been awful because there's been no Marvel movies. I mean, it's awful because of so many other real reasons, you know? But this is just like a, another thing, you know? No Marvel movies, and no previews, really. I mean, very limited. But a preview, so, so I've been waiting for, like, trailers for some of these movies that are supposed to come out. And what a trailer or a preview is meant to do is to show you how amazing something's going to be. And in the transfiguration, Peter, James, and John, and, and we, even as we read about it, and the Holy Spirit shows us who Jesus is, we see a glimpse, we see a preview of the King in all his glory. We see a preview, and we encounter the God of glory. And so in Jesus, we have a new deliverance. And in Jesus is the new very presence of God. And then finally, we see in Jesus a new son. This is what the father says as the cloud descends on the mountain and overshadows it. He speaks out of the cloud to Peter, James, and John. He addresses them directly. And gosh, that would be intimidating. And he says, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And if you remember in the Old Testament, Adam is referred to as a son of God. David is referred to as a son of God. Israel is referred to as God's son. All of these sons meant to show to God's world something of who God is. And every single one utterly failing to do just that. So now, not just a son, but the son of God has come. And God the Father says to his people about Jesus, this is my son. In him you see me. Jesus says that too, right? And another place in the Gospels, he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So in Jesus, 
we see God. He says, this is my chosen one. Listen to him. So that's the question. That's where we have to leave it for today. Is do we listen to him? Have we listened to him? Are we listening to him? Are we listening because what Jesus is telling us about himself is that he is God come to save. He is God come to bring us into his presence. He is the one in whom we must trust. He is the one we must follow. He is the one we must listen to. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we... We are in awe of who you are as you give us glimpses of your glory through your word. But God, our hearts are tempted to be in awe of other things, of almost anything else. We're tempted to listen to anyone and everything else but you. So Jesus, would you help us? Would you help us to see you for who you are in all your glory and all your saving might? And would you help us to honor you, to look to you, to trust in you, to pursue you? And would you help us to listen to you? As you say, follow me. God, help us to do so. In your beautiful, redeeming name we pray. Amen.